Technology is a wonderful thing. We grow, we learn, we improve things. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, okay, maybe not. We're going to take a look at that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because you know those things, they're your foundation. And we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, um, to or more importantly, to play and run and, and walk and hike and do yoga and CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, to do those things enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. Did I say enjoyably? I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different till you are. You're not going to keep it up if you're not enjoying it anyway. So uh, I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the podcast. And we call it the movement movement because we are creating a movement that involves you. It's easy. It's free. Uh, it'll be natural. About natural movement, having your body do what it's made to do. And there's a thing called the null hypothesis, which is basically you start with the way things already are. And if there's an intervention, the intervention has to prove itself first. And so natural is the null hypothesis. Null hypothesis. Anyway, if you want to uh, be part of this, it's really easy. Go. Oh, so moving about natural movement. Movement's about you. Natural movement. All right, I got it all. Go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. I didn't get any sleep last night, so I'm having a hard time. Uh, you'll find previous episodes, the ways you can interact with the podcast, where you can find us on social media, on YouTube, on Facebook, et cetera. And the way you become part of the movement just spread the word, share, like, leave reviews, give us a thumbs up, hit the bell icon on YouTube. You know what it, how to do it. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, subscribe. So let us jump in. Um, Jakob, tell people who you are and why what you do. <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you, Stephen. Yes, my name is Jakob Rose, and uh, I have a concierge personal training business. And uh, simply put, my mission is to help middle-aged individuals reclaim their metabolic health through uh, cardiovascular movement and also strength training as well. So that's kind of what I do in my professional life. How did you become someone who focuses on middle-aged people as a not middle-aged person yourself? Interestingly, I think part of it had to do with the fact that when I grew up, I was actually mostly surrounded by adults. And so I'm an only child. I never had siblings or I don't really have a large family to begin with. So there's not a lot of like people my age, so to speak. I didn't have a lot of millennial friends growing up, even though I am a millennial. So I think just simply because it was the type of people who I was comfortable with most, which is kind of, I guess you could say atypical for a millennial. But not only that, but I also did notice over time that around your middle age years, specifically when we start to notice a lot of these metabolic health parameters that start to decline, either you know high cholesterol levels, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, people start to get out of shape. They're not taking their health as seriously anymore. So I thought, you know, how could I contribute to this group of people who I spend a lot of time with around me and care about? And yeah, I just kind of went from there. Awesome. Yeah. The middle age thing, speaking of someone who's about to turn 60, um, there's a technical term for it. It's um, it blows. And, so, <laughs> uh, and, and what I mean is that there's, there's things that you just have to adapt to that you can't change. And there's things that maybe you can, but you can't do it the same way you used to. I mean, for me, so as a competitive sprinter, I would love to have um, yeah, like about seven pounds less body fat, getting rid of that now, whole different game than it was when I was your age, where it was, yeah, I skipped dinner once or twice. Um, or, you know, I have one less slice of pizza and now my body does this weird thing where if I change my diet, it's like, oh, you're doing that now. And it just stays the same. It's really crazy. Or I'm more, I'm really, I'm not responsive to dietary changes, but I'm responsive to activity, but I just can't do as much activity as I used to, because I can't recover as fast. So, For sure. The recovery element is huge. Absolutely. But I mean, to, to be fair, you really are turning 60, you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, you look really, really healthy for a six-year-old. <laughs> Obviously, you keep yourself in great shape. And I think uh, that's a sure. You know, I don't know how much of it's nature and nurture. My mom, when she was 40, came into my high school to pick me up and someone stopped her and said, did you get your yearbook yet? So, oh my gosh. Wow. It kind of runs in the family, but um, yeah. I, I will concede it's very entertaining to hang out with people my age and go, oh my God. Yeah, I don't, I don't look like that. That's funny. Um, no, but, I mean, I think it makes a big difference. And also, to, what is your, I mean, what is your current exercise routine? Like, what are you, how many days are you running at the track? I'm only, or, I'm only on the track like one day a week because that's all okay. I'm working the rest of the time. In the summer, sometimes I can get out early and get two days in. But again, mm -hmm. I'm doing high speed work. I've only got one really serious speed day in me a week and then I got to recover. In fact, 
this will this will be. And I'm going to get back to you in a sec. I was working on uh, strength for sprinting, doing the Nordic hamstring curl. Which, for people who don't okay. know, you kneel down, you have something or something holding your something or someone holding your feet down, and you just try to slowly lower yourself, your body to the ground. And I was trying to do that, like doing sets of that. I don't know, three times a week, and I just wasn't progressing. And when I stopped and started stopped doing that and started doing. Um, that training once a week, doing five sets of five reps, however well I could do them, but only one day a week within a month, I could actually go all the way down, come all the way back. So that was a crazy adjustment. But the other thing is lately um, I've been riding my bike to and from work. So that's about 10 miles a day and wow. has not made a lick of a difference in anything I can identify other than I'm really enjoying it. And I'm riding faster than when I started. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it reminds me too, just of the fact that you, you mentioned that you enjoy it. And I think like one of the biggest things that I notice with people too, is I think people, not everybody, people who are, a lot of people think that exercise isn't enjoyable. And I think it's a lot of times it's just the fact that they haven't found the right thing that they enjoy. Cause they think, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I no, mean, I, I think I, yeah. I, I spent from the time I was 32 to 45 looking for something that I enjoyed doing that I, that I could keep doing because there's things that I enjoyed. I was a competitive jump roper. I was doing some circus things and um, they were fun and I enjoyed them, but not enough that I was going to keep going. And then I discovered. Exactly. Oh, so, and so uh, at what point in your life did you discover running? On the well, um, I mean, I, I was a sprinter when I was a kid. I stopped when I was 15 and then I picked it up again at 45. Okay, excellent. And then that's carried you forth. Obviously, you've had 15 years to continue on that, that journey and yeah. continue enjoying it, obviously. Yeah, it's I'm still a master's All-American, um, so I'm fast, which wow. again, predominantly genetic. And But the thing about it that I love is it's a, there's a goal. Competition is a goal. There's crazy people who also do this thing as well. Um, and you can't get it right. There's no way to do it perfectly. And that intermittent reinforcement of like, Oh, my start was better this time, but my dry phase wasn't as good. You know, there's all those little things at the end of a race where you go, I know I could do it better. And that's very literally addictive. Uh, totally. It's a joke I have at the end of a race. People say, how'd you do? And I go, do you just want the number or can I give you the excuse as well? <laughs> that's so. great, man. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I think, and again, it's just a testament to the fact that you enjoy it. And I think for anybody listening, I'd encourage anybody to, you know, explore many modalities of exercise because obviously there are some that are you know from a physiological perspective perhaps better than others yeah. by definition but I, I don't think that should discount or discredit anybody's enjoyment when it comes to getting out and just moving um as a human should move you know what i'm saying yeah well let's i mean talking about track and field there are dozens of different events and finding the one that's the one that you enjoy is critical i mean i i know I run the 60 meters indoors, 100 meters outdoors. I don't run the two. I don't run the four. I don't run miles. Right. I don't do distance. I don't know how the corners on tracks work. It's very confusing. Uh, <laughs> on the GPS watch. So I get lost. But, you know, you can find your thing. And and then, then of course, there's limitations. I love pole vaulting and long jumping. My back doesn't let me do that anymore. Just Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing as well as like, I mean, there's just so many ways in which you can work around whatever your limitations are. I think a lot of times people get really into sort of a narrow mindset that, that you know, they see somebody performing a specific type of exercise or, you know, especially in like popular media, let's say they see somebody like have, you know, squatting with really heavy weights and they think, oh, you know, my back would never be able to handle that. But, you know, you can regress and progress different movements down to pretty much anybody's individual level. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's limiting at all. And I think there, it's just a matter of looking at it in a creative way and, and sort of approaching it from, from where you're starting, as opposed to kind of looking at what other people are doing. If that makes sense. Well, what, what you just said is interesting because like squatting heavy or deadlifting heavy are two things that I really like doing. And I've got a, basically a broken spine, so I can't do that. But, um, but to your point, finding the variations that are as close to satis as as close to equally satisfying because they won't be the same as yeah. one can. Um, that's been interesting, and totally. there are other ways of um, even doing those same exercises without the same amount of weight. We're doing other exercises with what seems like a lot of weight. Um, so there's, I think you're right. Of that mindset of experimentation is really important. Yes, precisely, and it kind of brings me to something as well when we're talking about like how you know, exercise should be enjoyable first and foremost. And something that's always been super inspiring to me has been, 
I was an anthropology undergrad major. So we looked a lot at different indigenous cultures. And one of the things that I learned was specifically that indigenous cultures have no true real separation between sort of their like play life and work life, if you will. Like it's, they're kind of one in the same and they don't necessarily formally exercise in the way that like you and I are, you know, have a very packed schedule. We have our day planned out to the hour and we set aside, you know, one hour to go to the gym or the track and that's our like quote unquote exercise time. But when you look at indigenous cultures, it's like they find ways to express movement in various ways that are enjoyable to them. And maybe it means, you know, chasing each other around or kids, you know, playing tag like games, whatever. And it's just kind of interesting that when we look to these people who arguably have some of the most, you know, optimal health, I mean, we, we have living day examples of hunter gatherer tribes that, you know, just exhibit pristine metabolic health. And so, you know, when we look to them, it's interesting to see that they, yeah, they approach exercise in a way that's like not so formal. And, and in fact, like the benefits of it are just the very fact that they're doing what humans have always done for all of evolutionary history, which is just express ourselves through movement in a way that's just natural and not very prescriptive, or they don't really think about it much, if you know what I mean. Well, there's also something about having that lifestyle where you engage in activities, you know, this is going to sound weird, in a way that you can't really replicate. So for example, yeah. the difference between, uh, I don't know, going to the gym versus walking down to the river, picking up rocks, bringing them back and building a house, hold it totally. The difference between going for a run or even sprinting, very different than when you're trying to chase down food or being chased by someone that thinks you're food. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I like to say, like, I can train as hard as I want on the track. Maybe I'll be a little sore the next day. I do one race where it's just hormonally different because of the adrenaline and the competition. Totally. That, you know, 13 second run and I'm shot for four days. So oh, yeah. you just can't fake some of these things. You can come close but it's not the same. Um, exactly. And I've got to answer another, your earlier question in another way that's kind of relates to this. So we were talking before this started, I, we just got a dog and I mentioned, I'd learned that I can sprint all out with no warm up at six in the morning, like roll out of bed and sprint. Right. That's what the dog does. And <laughs> it was actually shocking to me because when I go to the track, I spend 20 minutes warming up. I do all, all this stuff. And, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe there's more to how these bodies work than even I was thinking. Definitely. And it was just like an automated process. And you didn't realize that you had, I mean, I'm sure you realized you had the capability, but you yeah. never had to sort of like do it. In a, no, know. well, I never had, I, I never had the opportunity to, or the reason to test it. And it was just that. Exactly. It's like, oh, you know, I, I feel awake. I mean, let's just see how I feel. And I only did a l tiny little bit, like five seconds. It's like, what the hell? That right. And then, you know, now we still will do like, maybe out of a 20 minute walk or so I'll do a full out hundred, maybe three times. For sure. For sure. Interesting. Yeah. Actually it's funny. You should say that I don't, I don't have a pet um, or a dog specifically, but I experimented recently. Um, I also like warm up extensively before I do most of my uh, sprint or high intensity training, but there was a couple of times where kind of going off of this concept of like what it means to naturally move, move as a human and looking to indigenous cultures and, you know, hunter gatherers certainly aren't warming up for their, right. you know, daily tasks. They just kind of are doing them. Right. And so I thought to myself, I was like, Hmm, like, yeah. Like what would it be like to just like pretend like I was chasing an animal or like, like just, you know, go from like literally inside on my computer to just going out and like sprinting. And like, I was honestly like quite surprised at like how simple it really was. Like, I think I had this perception just, you know, growing up as like a runner and stuff, we always went through this methodical warm up and stretching. And it's not to discount those, because of course, right. arguably, we, we know, you know, from the literature that these things do, in fact, improve performance. But when you just, I don't know, I think it's something about like, letting go and just like letting your body, like trusting your body and just like yeah. letting go to and it's like, it's amazing, like what we can do. And we're just like on autopilot. It's like, no, like, let's just be human and just let it go, you know? You reminded me, I, I used to do a thing um, in a house that my wife and I used to live in. I had a pull-up bar. We had a, a second bedroom that was our TV room. So we had, a, we had a sofa bed, we had a TV bathroom. And I put a pull-up bar in the doorway between the room and the bathroom. And every time I walked by, I did some pull-ups or chin-ups. I like that. No warm-up, no thinking, no whatever. Just And just do as many as I wanted to. And it made significant differences. Just having something to do it without... You're not overthinking it, just do it and exactly. see. Exactly. Yeah, that was a totally. Fun. 
So, you know, the intro to this thing, I was talking about, hey, technology and, and human advancements are wonderful, but we're already starting to talk about indigenous cultures. I love that you have an anthropological history because the guy who really kicked off the whole barefoot running movement was Dan Lieberman from Harvard, who is an anthropologist, um, was not a physiologist, was not a physical therapist or biomechanist or any of those, but was studying indigenous cultures. So um, so let's jump into that a little more, shall we? Yes, definitely. Um, so it's actually interesting. I didn't know that. Um, oh, my really? introduction. Yeah, actually, like literally, I'm definitely going to go look him up now and probably contact well, him. <laughs> well, he's mentioned he's mentioned in Born to Run a couple times. And okay. what, what kicked off the barefoot movement was a combination of Born to Run being out, but that book had been out for a while before it took off. What, what really kicked it into high gear was when Lieberman's study came out showing that running barefoot and landing midfoot put less force through your body than running in shoes, where he took uh, some people in Africa who ran barefoot habitually, put them in shoes, and they started overstriding, heel striking, and putting more force into their joints. And that was, a, I can never remember if that was in nature or science, um, but that was, that, that got a lot of attention and really made things start to move. Interesting. Oh, also, too, I just for the listener, anybody um, born to run is a book that Stephen and I were talking about yes, uh, before the show started and highly recommend anybody who you know wants to dive into barefoot running. This is a great place to start. 100%. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's just a great book, too. It's a great story. It's a great narrative. My wife, who's not a runner, found it just as fascinating as every runner that I know. Uh, here's a little uh, teaser. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say this. Born to Run 2 is coming out in about eight or nine months didn't even know that that's amazing that's so great i just found that out wow all right i'm very very excited now <laughs> i think i think the idea of it is to is to be something more practical to get and because i the, the reason i know is uh chris and his partner eric they reached out to me not like partners like partner in the book um <laughs> reached out and said uh we're doing a section on footwear you know can we get some shoes to test and i sent them pretty much one of everything we make that is super cool, man. And actually, I'd love to just, uh, the quick aside, just dive into uh, just some of the zero shoe stuff. So just give me a little bit of a background specifically as to like what your inspiration was. Was it also born to run specifically or like how did that manifest for you? It was the uh, people who've, who've heard me know the story. So I'm going to do the really short version. Um it was a combination of some a friend of mine who's a world champion runner handing me a copy of Born to Run and suggesting that I, if I took off my shoes and ran barefoot, maybe I would learn why I had spent the last previous two years getting injured pretty much constantly. And I instantly figured out why I was getting injured. Um, actually, I take it back. It was uh, semi-instantly. My first barefoot run, I ended up with a, it was super fun. Again, I'm a sprinter. I go very short distances. I don't do anything longer than hundred meters. My first barefoot run, um, we were out there for like 40 minutes. We ran something like five or six K. I had mm -hmm. never done that before in my life. And I could have kept going. So we decided to stop. And wow. that was amazing. I had a big, ended up with a big blister on the ball of my left foot. And Whoa. I didn't think, oh, this is nonsense because I got a blister. I thought, how come my right foot is fine? And Ooh. my second barefoot run a week later, when I had this gaping hole on my left foot still, I thought if I can find a way to run that isn't hurting that, I'm probably not doing the thing that caused it. And let's give it 10 minutes. You know, if it doesn't work, I'll try again later. Uh, nine minutes and 30 seconds of agony later, something just changed and my running got faster, easier, lighter. I, I could have kept going forever, it felt like. And what changed wow. is I stopped overstriding. I stopped putting my foot out in front of my body. And like any good sprinter, I was pointing my toes. Bad idea. So, um, and then it naturally, my gait naturally changed. My injuries went away. I became faster, et cetera. So, I wanted that natural experience, that barefoot-like experience, but I didn't want to have to argue with people about whether it was legal for me to come into a store or a restaurant, um, by the way. Oh, it. my God. And so I made a pair of sandals based on this 10,000-year-old idea, and um, and then the rest, as they say, is history. Absolutely. I can attest to the uh, the, the restaurant analogy. So I, when I first got interested in uh, barefoot running, I was, I was in high school, and I, I don't exactly remember what year the first models of the vibram five finger shoes came out but i was okay 2006 so i was it was probably like maybe like 2008 or so maybe i got my first pair i was in high school at the time and gosh man there were some visceral reactions from not only my <laughs> classmates but everybody like anybody anywhere i went 
fact. And it just became like this. I mean, I think over time has become more of a good conversation starter. And I think obviously people have warmed up to the idea. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, but you know, certainly the visceral response was like the, the first thing I dealt with for the first like five years of it. And I mean, it's, it's great to see now that like, I mean, like, obviously like you, you know, you've brought this to the forefront really. And it's been amazing to watch the barefoot movement, you know, manifest in such a way that I think has been so much more, I mean, it's more acceptable. And I think like we, we now understand like the benefits of it and it's just, it's, it's undeniable. And it's, well, I mean, yeah. I agree. It's undeniable. The research could not be more clear. That doesn't mean that people have gotten, I mean, there's still a lot of pushback, especially from retail because the big shoe companies have been very deliberately trying to obfuscate the story and, uh, and basically spread propaganda and say that if you do this, you're going to, you name it, you know, your kids won't get into college, your mortgage rate will go up, your car won't start in the morning, whatever it is. Um, So, but the interest is growing significantly when people say, Oh, you know, there was a boom and then it busted. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, everyone I know in this business, our business has grown year over year, every year, every year, faster than almost any other business. So I'm hoping and trying to make it happen that we hit a critical mass where there are enough people who've had the experience because that's what sells it. um, That we hit this critical mass point where even the doubters go, "Eh, let me give it a shot. And when that happens, it's all over. I know. And I think the whole idea to me, I mean, even just in the first place, it's sort of like quite backwards if you think about it, right? Like, obviously, like we're born barefoot, like we just through evolutionary history have always, you know, operated in a barefoot fashion. And it's interesting to me that like the idea of like not not being barefoot is like sort of taboo, if that makes sense. So it's sort of bizarre. You know what I mean? Well, you know, like it, like I said at the beginning of this, um, the null hypothesis is start the way we're built and work from there. And there is there's no evidence that modern footwear solves anything, frankly. Uh, exactly. And the the reason that we've come to believe these things, like we need shoes with arch support, motion control, padded heels, etc., is because of um, admittedly brilliant marketing. And that, and after 50 years of, you know, everyone hearing that story, then you tell a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. It's common wisdom. That's where we are. So we're just, we're just going back in time 50 years and to when what we were doing is normal and the modern athletic shoe would have been seen as ridiculous. Totally. It's, it's an interesting frame shift and kind of going back to what, what you said before, I think, yeah, I mean, it's just like you tell a lie long enough and it just becomes and and if you think about it too it's like the the modern shoe really hasn't been around for that long relative to how long people have been walking bare i mean think about the time span right like how long have people been walking barefoot no 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 no, it's even better we know that people have been wearing footwear of some sort something to protect your foot something to hold that to your foot for forty thousand years so the modern athletic shoe is you know point zero zero one percent of human history it's crazy. It's interesting. And yet that, and yet we still, and these companies, they, they have such an influence that we think that that is the standard. It's just really well, quite. It's, it's even more, like I said at the beginning, you know, we are we, in the West, we are prone to think that newer is better, that technology yeah. is solving problems. There are cultures that don't think that, that think that preserving the way it's been done is better. Um, and mm-hmm. often that's correct. And we'll talk more about that. Um, that's sort of the crazy part. And more, even the new technology, none of it's really new. It's just variations on a theme, different kind of cushioning, different kind of art support, different kind of motion control. Again, where there's no evidence that any of those things are beneficial. So it's like the boy who cried wolf, um, except it's the shoe company who cried cushioning. (laughs) But in the original story, uh, the villagers got smart. And in our story, the villagers keep running to a shoe store every time someone says, here's a new form of cushioning even when it's proven that it's no better than what came before it. Yeah, so it's really um, wild. It's, it, it's, it's fascinating intellectually. It's annoying as someone who's trying to change the world and, and, right. and help people and make people better. So, but blah, 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 enough about me back to you. So, uh, so say more about the, about, you know, your relationship with indigenous cultures and especially how that's how you're applying that into what you're doing with, uh, I hate to use the word middle age with, uh, you know, people. Older than you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, uh, originally in upstate New York, which is a very rural environment. And one of the things that I became interested in just because 
kind of what we did as kids was going outside and being in the natural world. And so I got super interested in wild food foraging. Um, from around the time I was like around 12 or so, it started with just, you know, my family and I, we would pick blueberries up at these cliffs that we have near to where we live. And from there, as I got older and kind of more aware of nutrition, um, I started to learn, well, there's a, you know quite a big benefit to a lot of these wild foods. And so from there, I think it kind of carried my interest in my sort of early adolescent years into kind of diving deeper into that nutritional side of wild foods, if that makes sense. So I just, I, I don't know, I think it was just the coolest thing to be able to like walk outside and pick plants outside that I could consume as food. And then let alone like, wow, these things are actually like really great. And like, come to find out they're like, you know, lots of scientific studies that have shown that um, their nutrient profile is so much greater than that of our domesticated varieties. If that makes sense. Um, so what was what were some of the things you were picking? Give me a good wild foraged meal. Uh, yeah, so for sure. So I, one of the most common, which I think people may or may not know, is um, at least here in the Northeast, uh, we, every spring as a there's uh, asparagus. Of course, mm-hmm. that you, everybody's familiar with asparagus. That's a, a wild species for one. Um, and then the fall time, blueberries. And then again, going back to spring, there was, I mean, there's so many, like at least here we have a plant species called trout lily, which is the spring ephemeral that um, it is a sort of a lily-like plant, but it comes with these two really, really great leaves that essentially look like what a trout looks like. It has this sort of like these rainbow colors and they make like a wonderful salad green I mean, yeah, the, the list goes on, like mustard greens. I mean, there's just so much. And, and no matter what climate you're in, I think that's the coolest part is that there's always wild species of plants that you can forage. And it's just fun, man. Like it's a good way to get outside and impress other people when you're like eating stuff off the floor. And they're like, what the heck are you doing, man? Like, so, yeah. We were, we were, Lane and I were in Finland for the World Masters Track and Field Championships about 13 years ago. And we were there, it was August, I guess, early August. And wild blueberries, wild strawberries, wild raspberries, and mushrooms everywhere. The rule is uh, if it's on public land, it's for the public. And so you're literally just walking through downtown Helsinki and just Uh, (laughs) lunch. It was uh, awesome. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. And so I think kind of going back to your original question. So yeah, so that carried me forward into to high school. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life from a career perspective. And so when I got to college, I knew that I was interested in these things. And I initially wanted to uh, become a botanist because that was kind of the interest that I had with these wild foods. Um, uh, but I didn't get into the school of choice that I wanted to, which was a, a forestry and environmental specific school. So that was okay. So I got into um, a different school up north in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, called Skidmore College, which, by the way, was a great experience. And um, yeah, it was there that I took a couple anthropology classes, and I was just super fascinated by the fact that this was an area of study. I mean, I think I loosely understood the idea of anthropology, like through that, you know, the Ford Run book, they referenced uh, obviously some anthropologists in there, but I didn't really understand that there was like a formal career in which you could you could um, make out of out of exploring indigenous cultures and their lifestyle practices so that took me to take more of these classes and alongside with that I was always always interested in exercise so I did some exercise science and some biology and kind of tried to combine everything together and then after I graduated I decided well I don't know if I want to specifically study plants for the rest of my life I got at, at that time during college as anybody grows a lot they you know, they branch off and stuff. And I got like really, really fixated and interested on exercise and exercise performance. And prior to college, I'd had no experience uh, in the gym weightlifting. I'd always, always been, you know, I'm six foot five and gosh, in high school, I think I weighed like 125 pounds when I graduated. And I was like, I mean, it was like ridiculous. Dude, that's like, I what like I weighed at five foot five. Yeah, I know. So it gives you perspective. Like I was a string bean. Like it was, out of control. And, you know, I really did enjoy running and I, you know, but I think I wanted to branch out and try something different because I was so used to my body just like kind of being on overdrive, these long distances. And um, so, yeah, so I had a roommate um, still to to this day, one of my best friends, and he uh, was a professional powerlifter. And so that kind of got me interested in weightlifting. And so, you know, he taught me a lot of these foundational things. And from there, I just got obsessed with the progress that you could see on a 
you know, on a physical level, like you would, especially in the beginning, you know, like you, the first couple of years that you weightlift, you make exponential gains in your muscle mass. And if you've never lifted before in your life, it was just, it was just so addicting. So I got super interested in that. And then I was like, wow, like maybe I want to help people change their bodies in the same way. Cause I had, had had such a great experience with it. And so then, yeah, I had an internship at a strength and conditioning facility in Saratoga Springs. And that led me to the idea of like, oh, wow, like there's actually a job in which you can, you know, help people professionally with their, with their exercise and improve their health. And so that took me to, of course, personal training. And then, yeah, so after I graduated, I moved to the city and worked at one of the bigger box gyms called Equinox. And yeah, that that was great for a couple of years. But then I realized that there was something a little bit just a little too corporate about it. And I wanted to kind of branch off and do my own thing in a more, I guess you could say like focused and concentrated way in which sales weren't the predominant uh, focus, if that makes sense. Like, you know, of course, Equinox is a very big company and they have to you know, one of their main focuses is, of course, rent revenue. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that part of business, as anybody will know, but I really wanted to just have something that was like a little bit more focused and only have like a select group of people at a time that I could work with, but really spend, you know, quality hours with them improving their health, uh, you know, from the inside out. And so that's what, what got me into it. And I started my own uh, personal training business. And that's where we are today. So is there anything you're bringing into what you do with people that comes from your understanding of what indigenous people are doing? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of going back to what we said in the beginning is figuring out a way in which people can exercise and also call it play. So it's, you know, obviously like one of the main settings I train people in is either their houses or in a gym, which is the majority of it is what we do. But that being said, I often prescribe things to exercise things for them to do on their own and a lot of times I'm just prescribing them like hey like get outside and go for an hour-long hike with your family because that's not only going to be enjoyable it's going to be you know you're building social rapport with your family it's it's fun it's exciting it's something to do and you're getting all the cardioprotective benefits from the cardiovascular exercise that you're doing and so yeah, so basically, like going back to the indigenous culture thing, it's like finding a way in which I could prescribe exercise to people that would be fun, fit into their lifestyle, and then also take some of the principles from hunter-gatherer tribes, i.e., for example, not overindulging in carbohydrates. Like, obviously, we know that for the majority of human history, pre prior to agriculture, we didn't consume a ton of carbohydrates. And as a result, I think that's one contributing factor to why hunter-gatherer tribes specifically have superior metabolic health. And so kind of taking a piece of that and bringing it into the modern modern day lifestyle of, you know, the CEO or whoever I am training and saying like, look, like if these are the principles that have worked for thousands of years, much like barefoot running, like, well, where did we go wrong? And why did we all of a sudden like, you know, create this new improved like food pyramid and I think people are just like really confused about nutrition and exercise altogether because there's just so much information in the modern world that, you know, we just really need to simplify things. We need to go back to those founding principles of evolutionary history of how, how, how did our species operate prior to us being told like how we should live as humans, if that makes sense. It does to a point. Um, and I'll tell you why I say it that way. First of all, you're right about how we, some of the questions about how we got here. I don't know how this happened. I was a cognitive psych major in college. And somehow as a result of that, I got invited to be on a panel to evaluate the food pyramid before it became the food pyramid. And I said, um, if in fact, there's two interesting points. One is if in fact you want people to be focusing on grains as a primary thing, the pyramid is not the way people think. The idea that, that that's the base is not the way humans think. If it's more important, it has to be near the top. So just turn mm-hmm. the whole upside down. And oh, okay. They went, uh, we can't do that. I went, well, yeah, you can. And the second thing was that when, after our first round of feedback, they came back with some changes. And the biggest change is if you see the food pyramid, the top is fats and oils. And it's just like little some little white dots on a black background which your brain just ignores and you go down to the next thing because the most important visual spot on a pyramid other than the top is that two thirds the way up. Two thirds the way up is meat and dairy. 
And they got featured, the way they got featured was because of, let's call it, quote unquote, input from the meat and dairy industries. Of course. They told us this explicitly. Uh, So we talked to the meat and dairy people and they said it needs to look like this. And I went, oh, no. Um, so, So, yeah, that's partly how we get here is there are people with vested interests who are the ones responsible for how the information gets disseminated. So that's an interesting thing. Um, But my other, my semi disagreement with the thing you said is simply that while we want to look back, it's easy to make two um, erroneous assumptions. One is that everybody was the same. True. um, Because I, I mean, like my thing as a sprinter, I don't know one sprinter who isn't very carb happy. I've never met a sprinter who's on keto. I've never met a sprinter who, you know, who is low carb. It just hasn't been the case. In fact, the one time I was working with a nutritionist and he went, he had me go low carb at the end of two weeks, I called him. I said, dude, I just did something at the end of a workout I've never done before. He goes, what? I said, fell on the ground and couldn't get up because I couldn't finish it. And like, uh, hmm. so the idea that we're all the same seems somewhat silly. And the other part is that I think some of the dietary stuff fits in with the activity things as well. And so if we're only changing our diet, but we're not changing activity to match what that diet is, that can become problematic. And um, actually there's kind of a third thing. There's a a woman named Denise Minger, who's done some great writing on health and nutrition, nutrition in in particular, diets in particular. She wrote a book called Death by Food Pyramid, but her blog posts after the book are the most interesting because she decided to look and see if there are in fact indigenous cultures and hunter gatherers who eat completely differently from each other. And Mm -hmm. there are a couple of tribes that are on a super high carbohydrate diet, some who are on a super high refined carbohydrate diet and metabolically totally fine. Totally healthy. Yeah. Cause it was from her take, it was uh, calories and activity. And in fact, she's said that she's going to no longer write about nutrition And the way she said it, I have a sneaking suspicion it's because she started researching nutrition and longevity and found no correlations. Interesting. And yeah, no, I was going to mention specifically. So yeah, so I guess not to to fetishize like low carb or anything, because I certainly, as well as an athlete who does a lot of weightlifting and sprinting as well, like certainly do not consume modest amounts of carbohydrates. But yeah, specifically going to your point, Mm -hmm that we need to match the activity level to what people are consuming because Mm -hmm. of course yeah of course if you're an athlete or somebody who is metabolically healthy like having carbohydrates to fuel your workouts is absolutely essential and i I don't think anybody would disagree with that and i think yeah so i think that's that's that was the key the key element there is like matching the exercise in which the exercise that somebody does with their diet specifically absolutely do you do work with people on i mean in the same way we talked about i finding the activity that you enjoy and you want to do for whatever reason. Do you work with people doing the similar thing for, um, for, I don't want to use the word diet per se, but basically deciding what, what they should be eating. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Cause I think this, uh, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. Like now, like so many, like everybody I think has their own like tribe of like, you know, like low carb, high fat, like, like, you know, it's like this, everything's like branched, but, but I think going off of what you were mentioning before is that like, I really do think we need to enter a paradigm where, nutrition is individualized and you really do need to look at the individual because like you said not everybody is created the same just like not all indigenous cultures ate like low carb and whatever i mean i think that the the consistent theme is that we see that they're all metabolically healthy but why they were metabolically healthy is the result i think of you know many different facets so i think when it comes to an individual's nutrition programming i think it 100 percent has to be individualized so like you know, obviously, if I'm taking somebody who's severely insulin resistant and really overweight, like I'm not going to be like, here, dude, 500 grams of carbs, like, let's go, sure. <laughs> let's go hit the track. But, you know, conversely, if I'm working with a middle-aged individual who, you know, is metabolically healthy and they want to get stronger, of course, that will um, dictate the carbohydrate um, intake that I would prescribe to them specifically. So I think yeah, it really, I mean, that's a huge point, Stephen, like you said, is like, we really need to individualize this stuff. And I think the the one size fits all approach is really why we've created such, um, such erroneous decisions around diet. It's, I think there's another part where we can take uh, a weird 
thing is it's a combination of personal responsibility and totally abdicating personal responsibility at the same time, which is that we're wired to try to look for simple solutions. And totally. if someone says, I've got a simple solution, then we, you know, we're white on rice, pun intended, a carbohydrate. So true. I mean, and it's, and it's funny how we dismiss things um, or accept them. I remember reading a book or seeing a book at a bookstore that was going out of business. So this book was a dollar and it was about resistant starch, resistant carbohydrates, which uh, for people who don't know, if you take a potato, for example, you cook it, the starches are very, very accessible for, to your digestive system. If you then let the potato get cold, the starches rearrange and they, the molecules rearrange and it becomes partially, if not totally indigestible, not the whole thing, but a certain amount. And if you heat it up again and cool it again, even more resistant starch. And I remember reading that thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I just put the book down and it was like 10 years later when I started, when I, I bumped into it again and found it, it's like, oh my God, that's a real thing. Um, <laughs> who, who knew? And then even more, I met a guy, there's a, a guy that I had on the podcast named Peter Kaufman, who's got a product called UCAN, U-C-A-N. And they developed a even more, resi it's, it's resistant starch you don't digest. They developed what they call super starch, which is a super long chain digestible starch. That's the only carbohydrate you can eat and stay in ketosis. And they did it because um, someone, uh, one of the founders of the company, his kid has a metabolic disease where if he doesn't eat carbohydrates, like every couple hours, he would die. Hmm. And they developed this carbohydrate that allowed him to sleep through the night when he ate it. Wow. It's fascinating. And then I, I said to him, oh, and he says, it's all natural. I said, so you're taking carbohydrates and then just heating them and cooling them and just, you know, selectively doing things with temperature and pressure to create these long chain carbohydrates. He goes, yeah, how, how'd you figure that out? Well, what else could it be? So, <laughs> so, um, so, so, so that's, it's super interesting. If you were going to give people who are listening, if you're not, you're not working with them, so you can't give them explicit advice. Um, or specific advice, if you were going to give people some suggestions on what they might want to do to experiment and find the combo of things that work for them, can you think of something that you would suggest? Yeah. Uh, specifically with regards to diet or exercise. Well, let's do both. Okay. Yeah. So like, let's, yeah, let's start with the exercise piece. So I think first and foremost, I think uh, anything more than what you're doing now is going to be beneficial. Cause I think people often get into this mindset of, you know, I'm starting to work out. I have to go from not working out at all to hitting the, you know, hitting the weights five days a week and hitting the track also in the afternoon. Like, I think there's just this like all or none mentality that I think a lot of people have. And I think honestly, like we really need to be, I think, more conservative with our exercise programming, especially with people who haven't started. So I would say, especially if you are just starting off, I think one of the best things you can do is just do something just a little bit more than what you're doing now. And even if that means, you know, you're going from completely sedentary to just literally making a commitment to walk for 30 minutes. I know a walk doesn't seem like it's really that beneficial, but it is relative to what you were doing. So as I, long as you're doing something more than what you're doing now, I think it has immense benefits. And I think one of the things that turns people off from exercising is that they think it's so grueling. And it definitely can be if you go from, you know, not exercising at all to trying to run a 10K. Like, of course, that's going to suck. That's going to be terrible if you're not trained and conditioned for it. So I think definitely starting slower is, you know, less is more, I think is, is the real analogy here. I'm going to toss in a suggestion, something that I've been doing in a similar vein. You know, I had the same thought. It's like, what can I do to add a little something? And so on the chair sitting next to me, I have jump rope. And hey. not saying go jump forever, but like literally, like just go do 30 seconds, you know, totally, man. on the way to the bathroom, do 30 seconds. Um, exactly. And, you know, just do that a couple of times a day. Make, make totally. It, um, I mean, or and, and 10 seconds if that's all you can do. Exactly. And, and something like that as well as like super simple is that anybody can find, I mean, I, I know a lot of us, like we have busy schedules and it can be hard to set aside like maybe a complete hour to go to the gym or to go outside for a run or whatever, but it's like, if you can start incorporating little things into your lifestyle, like you would be amazed at how beneficial something like that could be. I mean, you can take that example almost in the opposite direction as well. Like, you, you know, you, let's say, you know, eat a candy bar um, and, you know, you start off with once. Yeah, sure. It doesn't make a difference. You do that every day. But then if you start doing that like five or six times a day, 
you're like, oh, okay, maybe this is starting to add up negatively to, you know, negatively. And so the same kind of applies with respect to like, maybe you're doing jump roping on the way to the bathroom, or maybe you're doing a set of five push-ups. like anything you can do that's more than what you're doing. You know, I think from a physiological perspective is going to benefit you. Let me recommend doing the jump roping after you leave the bathroom on the way to the bathroom. It can be problematic. I'm not, yes, might not be a good idea. <laughs> not saying I have experience to back that up, but uh, just, you know, words of wisdom. So, so what's the dietary analog? I mean, what you were just mentioning, if you notice you're having five colas a day, uh, even if their diet call is like going to four or, you know, totally. switching one of those out for water, what else would you recommend on the diet side? Yeah. I mean, I think the same to start off. I mean, I think the same principle kind of applies is like people jump into dieting, like this all or none principle where it's like, okay, like I'm going to go from eating, you know, my regular diet to eating 500 calories or 1200 calories or this insane rest- restricted uh, being in this insane restricted state. But of course that's anybody can attest that that's not going to be sustainable. So I think, again, less is more. I think just by simply, even like I have a lot of people like before I even prescribe them anything with regards to their diet is I literally have them just do a food diary and not for the simple fact, not for the fact that doing the food diary is going to be, you know, immensely beneficial to their metabolic health, but rather just the idea of being cognizant of what you're doing in turn, like that effect actually influences your choices. So it's like, I don't even have to tell you you know, Stephen, I want you to eat 2,200 calories today. And while that may be a accurate, uh, you know, prescription or not, I can just tell you if you haven't uh, focused on your nutrition before. Okay, for week one, all I want you to do is record every single meal that you ate today. And at the end of that, let's, you know, come back to me and tell me what you ate. And a lot of times, people will come back. And I know for a fact, they weren't eating like that before. Otherwise, they wouldn't <laughs> be in the metabolic state that they're in, right? Just by yeah. definition. But just by simply saying like, oh, okay, like I want to see what you ate at the end of the week. It's that sort of observer Hawthorne effect, I believe it's called, that gets people to start thinking in a conscious level of, of what they're eating. Because I think a lot of people intuitively know that, you know, eating that, you know, Snickers bar or whatever it is, back to our analogy before, like isn't benefiting them. I don't think anybody thinks like, oh yeah, this is a perfectly healthy habit, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so I think just like being more cognizant of like what I think we all know intuitively that we kind of need to do is, is in itself part of the nutrition pres- prescription, if that makes sense. Oh no, it totally does. Um, I have this fantasy that someday there'll be an app where you can take a picture or scan of whatever's on your plate and it will give you a reasonable approximation of the calories. I like that. Yeah. I, 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 I remember there was someone who had something like that. It was kind of like a, like it was almost like a mass spectrometer. I don't think it ultimately worked because otherwise we'd all have one by now, Right, right. but that's another one. It's like, not only uh, just like writing down what you eat. And in fact, I think that's a really interesting point. And I never thought of this one of on the first, like the first week, just literally write down what it is. Don't worry about the weight. Yeah. Don't try to measure it. Don't whatever. Just put down what it is. Exactly. And later, you know, you may want to weigh some of it. It's the things that are yeah. the, the, the most calorie dense possibilities, maybe just to see what that really is. Um, that would Absolutely. be, I never thought to do that because I know when I've tried to record what I'm eating, I've wanted to weigh everything too. And that became such a pain in the ass that I never do it. But again, like I love this idea of a little bit, something more or less, depending on what you're doing, every fill in the blank, let's call it week. And so just write it down the first week, take the biggest items or the most calorie dense items, weigh those just for the fun of it. Yeah. And maybe only do it for one meal, um, you know, in the course of a day for a week, um, just to kind of get a sense of what it is. And you see what reality looks like. I love what I love about that idea is fundamentally, you're talking about the same instruction I give people for running barefoot. You do a little tiny bit and the feedback is the most important part. Yes, there it is. It's the feedback. A hundred percent, man. Yes, totally, totally. Very interesting. Well, um, uh, I, I hate to say we have to wrap this up because I have a sneaking suspicion you and I could do this all day, but <laughs> but uh, but I'm kind of feeling like this is a good spot because those are both on the the recommendation for adding activity and for attending to diet, getting the feedback from both. I think that's a um, that's a great place to kind of leave people to uh, as soon as totally. we shut up, they can go do a something. Um, yeah write down what they were eating while they were listening to us or uh, you know, go to a couple of push-ups or jumping japs or japs, jumping jacks, man. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what it is with my face today. It's just not getting words out correctly. You know, and even that, like finding the body weight things you like to do, same idea, totally. like 
find out what you think is fun. During COVID, I did a 21-day push-up challenge. It was super, super fun because it was a different kind of push-ups every day. And at the end of it, you know, I'd like doubled the number of push-ups I could do. So, totally um, but I'm a competitive guy. So I like that thing. And it only took 10 minutes a day. It was brilliant. Like fit in perfectly with, I would drop behind the conference room table and do 10 minutes of push-ups. That is awesome. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, find, find what works for you. And I want to hear it. So um, Jakob, anything that people can, how, how can people get in touch with you if they want to engage with you in any way? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can go to my website, www.rosefit.com. And I also am under pause Rose right, Fit. Pause right there. Spell it. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's true. That's important. Phonetically, it's different. So it's uh, www.roze.com, not R O S E. R-O-Z-E.com. R-O-Z-E or R-O-Z fit? Uh, Rose Fit. R O Z E F I C. Rosefit.com. Yes. That's now important. We there we go. Anything else that people should know? Uh, I think that's, that's about it, man. Well, this has been a total pleasure other than the part where I mispronounce your name. And again, really looking forward to what's next. And I'm, I'm really hoping that people do try these little, do a little more experiments and report back on what happens as a result of doing that. That could be uh, life-changing, not only for them, but for people hearing that, you know, it really can be that simple to get started and make a difference. Absolutely. People should not underestimate those incremental changes, even if it means a couple more, you know, a couple of sets of pushups in between things or whatever it is, just getting started, those incremental changes. Yeah, I'm undeniably going to drop and do pushups as soon as we're done with this. Um, <laughs> I, I like that sort of inspiration. So anyway, well, thank you so, so much. This has been a real, real treat. And for everybody else. Likewise, Stephen. Oh, please. Um, but for everybody else, just a reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com for all the previous episodes, for all the places you can engage with us. Um, and if you want to share anything, if you have any comments, any criticism, any, any uh, recommendations of people we should chat with, people who might think I have my head completely up my butt because I... I've been diagnosed occasionally with a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome. So I'm happy to you know, engage with people and see what we can find because the most important thing is finding out what's true. And sometimes that happens by discovering that you've been wrong about something, which I get a kick out of. So um, you can drop an email to move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, go out, have fun, and live life feet first.